Father, we are really blessed to experience the physical blessing of the rain that's been falling, the snow that's been falling, in a land that is, has been parched. And as we think even of the, the lessons that we have been studying and the drought that was experienced in Egypt, even though uh, we can only uh, sympathize in part, at least we've had a concern and we're grateful for your provision. And Father, I do pray that you will uh, just be with us throughout this day and, and grant protection as we travel back and forth through the slippery streets. And now, Father, we just pray that you'll be with us in this class time as we study again from the life of Joseph and the life of Jacob, men of God and their wives and their family, people, Father, who served you and we're grateful for this opportunity to share together around that story, around that lesson. Bless our fellowship together here this morning in Christ's name. Amen. I'd like to read at Genesis 47. I'm going to begin again with verse 7 and, and move through that section before we move on to the next one. Genesis 47, 7. Then Joseph brought his father Jacob and presented him to Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many years have you lived? So Jacob said to Pharaoh, The years of my sojourning are 130. Few and unpleasant have been the years of my life, nor have they attained the years that my fathers lived during the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from his presence. So Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had ordered. And Joseph provided his father and his brothers and all his father's household with food according to their little ones. Last week we looked at this encounter between Pharaoh and Jacob and talked a little bit about certainly Pharaoh's amazement at uh, a man of such antiquity, not common to Pharaoh, of course, and we looked a little bit at Jacob's response and, and attempted to relate that to how we might look at life today. He, you know, his days were few, he said, and unpleasant. And, and then he went on to say, in comparison particularly to those of my ancestor in, in, in his reference to the longevity of his life. Uh, we noted that his father had lived to be 180, his grandfather 175, and, and his great-grandfather to 205. Uh, he would live 17 years beyond this encounter with Pharaoh. He would live to be 147. But I think Jacob's response in part is that he felt as if the years were weighing heavy upon him. He had lived 130 years. He didn't know if he'd even live 131. And the pressure of all that had come upon him made him feel like he, he just simply wouldn't attain to the 180 years of his father Isaac or to the others uh, of his ancestors. And I noted that uh, certainly this is an expression of the continued fall off of longevity following the flood. And we talked a little bit uh, about that. I think that we should note that the whole conversation between Pharaoh and Jacob is probably not recorded here in Genesis. Certainly the encounter went on for a while and the discussion went on, but what God revealed to Moses 
to be recorded in the book of Genesis is here for us. And as we think about that, we have to remember that what was written, therefore, must be of special importance relative to other things that were said. And so as we focused on, on especially Jacob's response, I think it behooves us to, to think about that. The essential points of the conversation are recorded for us. I think it's also important to notice that both at the beginning as well as at the end of the audience, it was Jacob who blessed Pharaoh. And here's Pharaoh on his royal throne, the mighty prince of the land. And here he is being blessed by this Bedouin sheikh, if you will. In, in the natural appearance of things, everything's all backwards. But of course, in God's eyes, in God's minds, this, mind, this is reality. Because this is where it's at. Uh, the, the men and the women who walk with God, be they ever so humble, they are truly the great people on this planet. Not the princes and the, and the royal uh, rulers of the lands or the mighty prime ministers or, or great congressmen. Or whatever. These are not the great people. But, but the people who pray and the people who minister and the people who reach out in the name of the Lord, these are the great people because God looks on the inward part of a man rather than on the outward, as we tend to do as human beings. So Jacob blessed Pharaoh. We, we don't know, of course, what, what that blessing comprised. We can only speculate uh, what the, the blessing included. But certainly, he invoked God's graciousness upon Pharaoh, God's blessing, God's wisdom upon Pharaoh. Um, you and I are supposed to pl uh, pray for the princes, the rulers, the kings, the presidents, in our case, of the land. And we certainly need to pray that they have wisdom. Because leading a land, whether it be uh, as small as Egypt was in those days or as great as the United States is today, is a very, very difficult task. And of course, it's a lot easier to criticize than it is to pray. But we do need to be people of prayer for those in power. Well, after the formalities were over, we're told that Joseph took his father back to Goshen to make arrangements for his father and the whole clan to be settled in the land of Goshen and to make legal arrangements so that the land upon which they would settle would be at least uh, theirs in the formal sense or an informal sense of the word, whichever it might mean at that particular time. The scripture says that they were given the best of the land. I think we have to define the best as the best in the context of they being a uh, of them being a livestock raising people. They probably weren't given the most fertile land. They didn't need the most fertile land. They were growing sheep and goats and cattle and so forth. They simply needed the best of what was remaining of the grazing land in the land of Egypt. The scripture in this particular passage refers to this area as the land of Ramses. Now that reference seems to be a kind of a reverse anachronism, sort of like Moses who comes later putting it back in, in time because it was in Moses' day that the great city of Ramses was built just to the north of the land of Goshen. And the, the Israelites played a role in the building of that city of Ramses. And because of the dominant position of that city, the whole land around it came to be known as the land of Ramses. So in the context of this passage, land of Ramses, land of Goshen are synonymous 
terms. Moses injecting the later term, or what we at least assume is the later term, as a synonym for the land of Goshen. The Exodus would begin at Ramses and would move out from Ramses to Succoth. In fact, that's what it says in Exodus 12. Now the sons of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth and then continued on from there. And so we're looking at the starting point of the first leg of the Exodus. Well, at the end of this passage in verse 12, uh, in addition to settling his family in the land, Joseph did what was absolutely crucial given the situation that existed with the famine. He saw to it that every family was adequately provided for throughout the duration of the famine. And I think that we have to see this as kind of an exemption from what comes next. In other words, his family lived there in the land of Goshen, and they did not have to participate in the events that we're going to read about next. Coming and buying grain and giving away all their cattle and giving away all their land in order to acquire uh, food. Because Joseph provided for them continuously, and certainly they were not forced to do what we'll be reading about in the next passage. If you'll turn to verse 13, or, or look at verse 13 of Genesis 47. Now there was no food in all the land because the famine was very severe so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. And Joseph gathered all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan for the grain which they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food, for why should we die in your presence? For our money is gone. Then Joseph said, Give up your livestock, and I will give you food for your livestock, since your money is gone. And so they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses and the flocks and the herds and the donkeys. And he fed them with food in exchange for all the livestock that year. And when the year, that year was ended, they came to him the next year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent and our cattle are my Lord's. There is nothing left for my Lord except our bodies and our lands. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food. And we and our land will be slaves to Pharaoh. So give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. Seven years is a very long time for a famine of this severity to persist. Again, let me remind you, Egypt is a land that is fed almost exclusively by the Nile River. And if the Nile dries up, the land dries up. It basically does not rain, even though recently they've had some rains over there and they've had some flooding, which is a little unusual for Egypt. But generally speaking, it's a very, very dry land. And think about it, 2,500 consecutive days of clear skies and burning sun. You know, as, as we go through a summer here in Reading, and you get up to 90 days of clear skies and burning sun, we get, you know, I don't know about you, but you probably get a little bit tired of it after a while. 
like a little variety. Maybe we don't like it to turn frigid, but nevertheless, it, it's nice to have a little break. But 2,500 days without not only no rain, but the river shrinking and shrinking and shrinking to a mere trickle as it ran through the land of Egypt. Apparently, there was only enough water running through the Nile to slake the thirst of the people and the animals, and that, that was it. There wasn't enough water to, to irrigate with. Obviously, since almost all irrigation in those days was gravity-fed, the water was way too low to gravity-feed it anywhere uh, in, onto, the, onto the fields, and so the water could be used only for drinking purposes, what there was of it. The passage says that Canaan and Egypt languished. The Hebrew word that's used there also means fainted. Just kind of passed out, if you will, from, from the drought. The lack of water literally parched the land. It dried up whatever springs existed and whatever wells there may have been. And certainly any cisterns were used up. And, and there basically was just no water any place. Egypt, ancient Egypt was known to the Egyptians as red land, black land. The red land being the desert out around, the black land being where the water flooded up and in places irrigated, was irrigated up to provide you know, crops and so forth. The black land, the dark land that's, that was moist. Well, the red land was creeping right on down to the very, very little trickle that was running through the, the, the lowest course of the Nile River. And the, the land was, was literally being destroyed, just desiccated. And the vegetation was probably mostly gone from the land. It's very possible that enough grass survived in the delta for animals to at least thrive maybe through the mid portion of the, of the drought, maybe two-thirds, who knows. In, in a delta area, the water spreads out. And often as it spreads, it, of course, builds up the water table. And so it would take a little longer for that area to, to become dry uh, to the point where the vegetation would be, would be gone. But I'm certain that towards the end of the drought, they had to actually buy grain to feed the animals to keep them alive too because the grass would have been insufficient to keep them alive. Well, the people of Egypt and the people of Canaan used up all their money to buy grain from the Egyptian storehouses. Yeah, I think it's important for us to recognize that they didn't have money like we have money. They didn't have checking accounts. Of course, there were no banks. Uh, they didn't have credit cards. I'm sure they were grateful. All, all they had was, uh, you know, some form of, of, of valuable item that was movable. You know, gold was mined in ancient Egypt. Ancient Egypt was one of the primary sources of gold in the ancient world. All the way down into Nubia, there were some gold mines. Uh, gold and silver in a kind of an ingot or granular form was a, a means of money. I, I think I mentioned to you before that coins were not even invented until the 7th century before Christ uh, by the Lydians, according at least to the record left behind by the, by the Greeks. And so they didn't even have coins, as we would understand coins. So money was not prolific in, in the land. And it really wouldn't take a lot to, for what was there to, to be dried up, to be sucked up, as it were. And so it had been exhausted in purchasing grain from the royal 
grain bins, if you will, the royal storehouses. Now, in a way, it was, it was a, a proper thing because the royal treasury had been expended in acquiring the grain in the first place and in building the great storehouses and, 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 and making the great infrastructure necessary for the, the grain to be stored, the grain to be protected, uh, the, the, when it came time to, for the grain to be sold, for the personnel necessary for all that. So, so the government had spent a lot of money. And so now the government is simply reaping the profit or at least being repaid for its effort in collecting the grain in the first place. But when the money was gone, the famine was not. The famine persisted, but the money was gone. So what are we going to do? They came to Joseph. They knew to whom they should go. And so they came to Joseph with their money gone and their needs still existing. And they said, what shall we do? Well, Joseph could have done what some governments have done through history, uh, what the ancient Romans did, but for other reasons largely, and, and that is to put everybody on the dole. Say, well, come, tell me how many people in your household and we'll give you so much grain you can go off home and feed your family. But Joseph did not do this. He would not put the people on the dole because he knew that would be demoralizing. And if you, you know, anybody who doesn't believe that just has to look at the record through history. Uh, this is what happened, especially in ancient Rome. Uh, this is what hap has happened time and time in history, where a, a basic uh, peasant class, farming, agricultural peasant class, has been destroyed for one reason or another in terms of their capacity to produce for themselves. And the government has then supplied their needs for nothing in exchange. This has really led to great moral decline amongst that particular population. Joseph understood that ambition and self-respect would die if the people were just given what they needed and received nothing or giving nothing in exchange for what they were receiving. And so Joseph said, well, you've still got donkeys and oxen and, and goats and, and horses and so forth, so bring them, bring them in and we'll exchange grain for them at a given rate. Certainly, probably so much grain per horse, so much grain per donkey, so much grain per camel or whatever, if they had camels in Egypt at that time, which they probably did. This, this would be the exchange that would take place. And so they brought their livestock in. Now, they could have killed and eaten their livestock, right? But we have to recognize, first of all, the ancient Egyptians were not primarily a meat-eating people. I'm not saying they didn't eat meat, but it wasn't their primary source of, of sustenance. They were a grain-eating people. And most of them would rather trade their animals in for grain than eat their animals, simply because they preferred that form of food. But not only that, what if you eat your animals? You can sow seed in the ground and get a new crop, but if your animals are all dead, <laughs> it's all over, you know. Uh, so in order to preserve life and, and, and for there to be uh, animals who are able to work when the famine is over, animals who, who can provide milk, animals who can provide meat or hides or whatever, hair, after the famine, they had to keep them alive and not eat them. Well, they brought their animals in. You can imagine the logistics here of having to take all these animals as they're brought in and, and move them into royal pastures of some sort or another, probably. Uh, unless uh, they simply 
yielded title over to the government and they, were, and they remained where they were. It, it doesn't say here specifically. But whatever the case may be, they, they no longer possessed the animals and Pharaoh was the owner of all the animals in the land of Egypt. And with that, they were able to buy another year's worth of food. Now, remember, when Joseph first was put in charge, God revealed to him how long this famine was going to be. And I, he, you know, he told Pharaoh, and, and certainly it was public news, this famine is going to be seven years long. And so the people were counting. <laughs> and, and they thought, wow, you know, animals are, are going quickly here. The animals are soon gone, and, and the, the famine is not over. We've got another year or two of famine left to go. It it's doesn't you know, make it clear here at what point they were, but certainly it was later part of the famine. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? And so the people came back. And, and the passage of Scripture, I think, gives to us the, the presentation made to Joseph by a spokesman selected by the people. Say this to Joseph on our behalf. Their movable wealth was gone. Whatever money they had, the animals they had, all of, all of these things are gone now. All that they have left was clear to them they had nothing but their land and their labor. Land and labor, land and labor. If you study through the history of, uh, of economics, you'll discover that various economists will argue that either land or labor, those are at least two of the major areas which are considered to be the very root of wealth of any society. Now, some talk about other things, but, but land or labor. You know, the, you've heard of the wealth of nations by Adam Smith. You know, are you talking about land? Are you talking about either one you're talking about is very basic to the, to the wealth of a country. So they're giving now or they're offering all that's left. The very foundation of the economy of their culture, they're handing it to Pharaoh if he will take it in exchange for the food. The plea is very impassioned. And the spokesman, as you read there in verse 19, said, Why should we die of starvation and the land become vacant and desolate for want of someone to work it? Put yourself in Joseph's place. What do you do? We've got nothing left but our land and our labor. I think Joseph's heart went out to these people. Joseph was a compassionate man. Joseph had been through the mill. So he, he knew what it was like to be in a difficult situation. And I think he was tempted at this point to say, oh, well, just give it to him. But he knew that if he did that, he would be only meeting the needs of the people for the moment. He would not be doing what was best for them in the long run. And, of course, he would not be doing what was honest before Pharaoh. And so he chose not to do that. He chose rather to accept their proposal. They proposed it. The people proposed it. He didn't demand it of them. Pharaoh apparently didn't demand it of, of them. They made the proposal. And so Joseph chose to accept the proposal. And they were given bread for grain now and promised that they would have seed at the moment the famine was broken so that they could plant crops when the rains or, or when the waters rose again. All of this in exchange for their land and for the labor to work that land. Now this seems to imply, seems to imply that up to that moment in time, 
that the land of Egypt was in private hands, that the peasants probably owned their own plots. And this, of course, is going to change. The land would now become the possession of the government. When, whenever it says pharaohs, it, of course, means the Egyptian government, and, and Pharaoh, of course, representing the head of that, in more ways, of course, than the president represents the head of our government, because Pharaoh was the permanent leader, and he also had, you know, a position of deity. So he, you know, they, the ancient Egyptians mixed this life and the next life together uh, more than most uh, rational Americans tend to do. And so he had greater authority than just being the political leader of the land. And so his name is used here to represent the government. They would now become, in effect, serfs. They would still have their house in the, on the land or in the local village. The, the piece of property that they turned over would still be theirs to work. It just wouldn't belong to them. They would be working on behalf of the government as they labored in their fields, as well as for themselves. It was kind of a serf-like condition, not as degraded as it became in the medieval European world, but nevertheless it was headed, or at least it was a, 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 in that direction as this was being established. They would keep a measure of freedom in their private lives. That's the difference between being a serf and a slave. When it says slave here in the Hebrew, it means servant in the general sense of the term. It doesn't mean slave like you think of the slaves in the South in uh, the antebellum period in America or in, in some other part of the world. But, but servants in the sense that they have a, a measure of freedom in their own lives to, to make choices and to live at home and in their village as they would, but their primary obligation, of course, was to pay a tax on the land that they worked from the crop which they raised. This feudal-type system became permanent. And this seems to be indicated by, first of all, the fact that the 5th century Greek historian Herodotus, when he wrote his great work called The History of the Greek and Persian Wars, he was trying to, to, to explain the, cl the clash between the Persian culture and the Greek culture. and He went behind the actual events. He wasn't just a logographer, somebody just wrote down a list of events, but he wanted to understand the reasons behind it. And in so doing, he researched these societies, and part of his research had to do with Egypt. And he mentioned that in the land of Egypt in his century, which was the 5th century before Christ, that Pharaoh was letting out the land to the people in exchange for an annual tax which they would pay in grain. And, and, and we're talking about at least a thousand years, 1,200 years after the day of Joseph, the system was apparently still operating. As we think of government bureaucracies today, and some of us would probably prefer not to think about them, but it's not just today, it's down through history. Uh, bureaucracy has, has become sort of a self-perpetuating uh, thing. But as we think of those things, Joseph is a wonder in the midst of it all. Joseph is a delight to think of as we consider government influence over people's lives because he faithfully served Pharaoh and the people. Not always easy to do 
to, to do what's right for the government and what's right for the people at the same time. Not an easy task. Not an easy task. But Joseph knew how to make that balance. He worked out the best for both. And he skimmed nothing for himself. And that's probably one of the most amazing things as we, as we think about it. He could have enriched himself. I mean, he was the second most powerful person and really the most powerful because Pharaoh was back behind the scenes and, and not really concerning himself with all of these things. I don't think Pharaoh sent spies over to watch on Joseph and see what Joseph was doing. Pharaoh trusted Joseph. And, and Joseph could easily have skimmed off for himself. He could have kept a few animals here and, and gotten entitled to some land over there, gotten a little bit of the money as it came in. I mean, there was many ways in which Joseph could have been extremely rich. And you think of the background from which he came. He had been a slave or a servant. He had been in prison for all those years. And, you know, he, from the human point of view, he had every reason to feel like he ought to, you know, make it up somehow by doing that. But he did not. He could have skimmed it off for his family. You know, sent him down a few extra animals, you know, some money. Uh, you know, giving them title to certain pieces of land in Egypt. But I don't think the idea ever crossed his mind. Because Joseph served a greater master. And Joseph worked for a greater kingdom than the kingdom in which we live today. And, and for him to act in such an avaricious manner, I think, would have been immoral and pointless. Many people today don't seem to have a lot of problem with the immoral part but they never think of the pointless part. It's pointless. There is no point in, in grabbing all this stuff for yourself because what in the world good is it going to do you in the long run anyway? The old adage is you can't take it with you. And that's an adage you just can't get away from. <laughs> it's always true. So what is the point in amassing blood money? What is the point in it? Well, the Gospels give us a point. Matthew chapter 16. I don't think this is on your outline, but Matthew chapter 16. This is a very well-known passage, but I think it's fitting right here. Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. From that time, Jesus Christ began to show his disciples that he must go up to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and be raised on, up on the third day. And Peter took him aside, and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you're a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. And that's a real key statement Christ is making there to Peter. He's saying to Peter, your mind needs to be on God's interest, not on this world's interest, because you're a child of the king, you're, you're, you're a citizen of the greater kingdom. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life, and, and what that means there is save his life for his own pleasure, shall lose it. But whosoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. For what will a man be profited if he gains the whole world 
and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then recompense every man according to his deeds. What is the purpose? What would be the purpose of acquiring this vast kingdom and this vast wealth? What good is it going to do? We all are like a flower that rises up in the morning and is burned into a crisp in the afternoon. Our life is but a vapor, vapor we're told in Scripture. So, you know, to spend life trying to acquire this wealth, amass this wealth, crooked or, or straight, what's the purpose of it? Scripture, of course, makes it very clear that we don't say, yeah, there's no purpose in it, so I'm just going to be a bum. You know, it tells us that's not the way to go either. We're to be faithful in what we do. We're to provide for those that depend upon us. But we're, we're citizens of another kingdom. We march according to a different drummer. And Joseph understood that. He, he had the greatest opportunity of any person, I think, throughout history to enrich himself. But he did not do it because he knew it wouldn't do any good. And he'd fail to serve God and be the man that God wanted him to be in this situation. And I think Joseph is a wonderful example to us. And when you combine that with Jacob's words, the years of my life have been few and unpleasant. I think we have a real view of things. And, and, and people who chase after this world's rainbows just don't have a good grasp of the brevity of life and of the vast expanse of eternity. You know, as, even as our pastor has often pointed out, you know, eternity is like a line that goes out that wall and out that wall, and our life is like a little pinprick on that line on this planet. It's like the person who, I don't, I don't remember who it was, but said eternity is, is as long as it takes for a little tiny bird to come up to a massive mountain and peck away one grain every thousand years and carry it away. Come back and peck another grain away in another thousand years. And, you know, I mean, even that, of course, is finite in the sense that theoretically a long enough time the bird could peck the mountain away. Well, that'd be a long live bird, wouldn't it? <laughs> but, but, you know, it, the, the point is, it makes no sense to put it all for the moment and lose it all for eternity. Let's turn to verse 20 of Genesis 47. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for every Egyptian sold his field because the famine was severe upon them. Thus the land became Pharaoh's. And as for the people, he removed them to the cities from one end of Egypt's border to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy for the priests had an allotment from Pharaoh, and they lived off the allotment which Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have today bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you may sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own for seed for, of the field and for your food and for those of your households and as food for your little ones. So they said, you have saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord and we will be Pharaoh's slaves. And Joseph made a statute concerning the land of Egypt valid to this day 
that Pharaoh should have the fifth. Only the land of the priests did not become Pharaoh's. Well, most of the land of Egypt became a royal possession as a result of the exchange that Joseph made that day with the people. This passage tells us that the people were temporarily moved into the cities. That was not so that Joseph could make sure that all the land was officially appropriated or titles were transferred at that moment. The purpose of moving the people into the city was to facilitate the grain distribution because that's where the grain was stored. Earlier passage that we read a month or two ago tells us that. The grain was stored in the city. So he moved the people close to the grain storage sites and off their distant farms. Once the famine was over, of course, the people would then go back out to their farms, their villages, and live as they had before. Now, the scripture tells us that the only land that did not come into the possession of the crown was the land of the priests. Egypt, as we've already noted, was a land of many deities. It's a very, very religious land. I, I think I noted this to you before. When we were in Egypt, the lady who said, why did you spend so much time in Israel and so little time in Egypt? And she says, don't you know that Egypt is a holy land? Well, yeah, we didn't explain to her our view of what her holy land was. But... Um, Egypt has been a land of religion from as far back as we have record. And so the Pharaoh did not expropriate the land of the priests, the land of the temples that uh, served to help provide for the priests. The Egyptian priesthood was very powerful uh, and very numerous, especially was the priesthood of the sun god Ray powerful in the northern part of Egypt. And there were times, in fact, when the priests dominated the throne and, and used Pharaoh as a puppet at various times in history. What did Joseph think about all this? What, what did Joseph think? Oh, yeah, you shouldn't, ex you, you shouldn't exempt the priests. After all, they're false gods. <laughs> I, I think Joseph just uh, said, hey, that's God's business. It's not mine. My business is to live faithfully before Pharaoh and this people as a testimony to the true and the living God and let God take care of false religion. Let God deal with Pharaoh in his heart. Let God deal with the whole situation. Not, not try to, to finagle it myself. And uh, so that's the way Joseph responded, I believe. Well, once Joseph had completed the, trans, uh, the, the transfer of the lands... Uh, to, to the title of the pharaoh or, or the government, he announced this new economic system that we read about in, in verses 23 and 24. He said, Behold, I have today bought you and your land for Pharaoh, and now here is seed for you that you may sow. In other words, he said, the seed will be there when, when it's ready and when it's time. And at harvest, what will be your responsibility? You will give Pharaoh a fifth, the royal fifth, the royal fifth has been used many times in history. And uh, it, it was even used by the Spanish as they occupied the New World. The king wanted his royal fifth. And uh, there's biblical precedent, of course, for that. Unfortunately, many kings wanted, in addition to the royal fifth, other taxes besides. 
But uh, this was to be all that Pharaoh exacted, at least as Joseph writ, wrote the law and understood the law. As the grain was produced they were and harvested, they were to give Pharaoh 20% of the grain. They would keep 80% of the grain. From that, they would extract seed for the next planting, and they would feed themselves. Well, when water is there, Egyptian, Egypt is an abundantly producing land. Otherwise, there couldn't be between 50 and 60 million people living in that little valley as there are today. If it weren't for the fact that it is a very productive land when the water is there. And so for them, it's not a great burden to pay 20%. Uh, I think most of us here in America would be very, very happy to pay 20% as, you know, flat out, that pays all government services, federal, state, and local, <laughs> and everything. We, we, most of us would be happy. Happy with that, I think. It's not, it was not, at least to the ancient Egyptians, it was not oppressive. You do have land redistribution here, of course. Seemingly in the wrong direction, at least uh, from the opinions of many modern uh, sociologists. But uh, historically, land that may have been in private hands tended to gravitate. And that small, wealthy aristocracy would then oppress the people and extract a whole lot more than 20% from the people, just leaving them barely enough to stay alive so they could work the next year. This is the way it has tended to be. Or if the land was distributed, each plot was so dinky that, that people could not possibly make a living on it. You know, it's, it's like the great land redistribution situation which happened in Mexico back uh, about the time before World War II began. There was a very leftist Mexican president who redistributed almost half the land of Mexico. But so many people ended up with little bitty plots of land so small they couldn't, couldn't make it. And so they still remained impoverished as they had been before. And so what we're looking at here is a situation that is, is really kind of unique because Joseph said, you will get land according to your need. If you have a large family, you get more land. Small family, you get a little less family. Uh, land, But it's yours to work, and you get 80% of what you grow on the land. So there's an incentive to work hard there. Sure, Pharaoh's amount will be larger, but yours will be larger too. And not only that, now the government will be responsible for capital improvement that you couldn't possibly do as a private person. The government will build the ditches and the canals for the irrigation. The government will build the storehouses. Of course, they already have, but maybe more storehouses, which you as an individual couldn't afford to do. So in many ways, this was a very enlightened program. And I think it was enlightened because God gave it to Joseph. I, I think this was God's given program to Joseph, and he had to get Pharaoh's approval, of course, but I don't think Pharaoh had a bit of problem with this. Now, how can I say that? Well, because this is the same program God institutes for Israel. When Israel moves into the land, he says, The land is mine. I am your God king. And this land is mine, but you may work it. You will tithe, pay a 20% tithe, and the rest is yours. That was God. That was the way he set it up for Israel as they moved in the land. Of course, they would move away from that, but that was his plan under the judges, the way it was to operate. Well, the Egyptians enthusiastically endorsed this whole program. And they said to Joseph, you are our savior. Matthew Henry, in making his comment on this passage, quotes from Job, chapter 2. We won't turn to it, but this is 
uh, interesting little phrase. Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has, he will give for his life. And of course, that was why these people were enthusiastic, at least in part, was it's better to give away what you have in order to survive until tomorrow. Because if you die today, it doesn't make a bit of difference <laughs> what you did with the land. Because it's not going to be yours to, to use anyway. And so for them to be able to live through this and then to work the land again and to be able to provide for themselves and for their, pros their posterity was, was a wonderful thing. And I think they saw that uh, God's hand was in this. And Moses says, what does he say at the end of this, this, this passage? Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, valid to this day, to the time of Moses. And that was after they already left Egypt. When Moses penned this, probably sometime around the Mount Sinai experience. And so it continued on beyond this time. Well, next week we'll finish the chapter.